Bonus is one of these really interesting concepts that we hear a lot of conversation about at the moment to do with data science, to do with machine learning AI. And the question is often, where is the opportunity for bias to be introduced into the system? In particular, where you've got automated decisions that are being made. You know, if you've got a biased system, uh, that's going to be perpetuating certain outcomes that are not desirable in the real world. That's a real problem. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Hey, Adam, you know, I just moved house and I was unpacking all my boxes and came across my son's Rubik's Cube collection. And when he was 10 or 11, he collected three by three cubes, five by five cubes. And, you know, it it just goes on. And he was obsessed (laughs) with learning how to solve this incredible puzzle blindfolded. And do you remember Mm -hmm. he was able to solve the Rubik's Cube blindfolded? Well, at least half of it anyway. In, I think his record was 22 seconds. And it really perplexed me. I thought, well, you know, how does he remember how to do that? I mean, I struggle even, you know, being a words person, a comms person, struggle to to do a Rubik's Cube in like less than 10 minutes. And apparently, you know, you know, it's quite common for maths people and engineers to be able to solve it in <laughs> quickly within less than two minutes. But then he, he explained it to me and he said, mum, there's five or six algorithms that you just have to remember. And essentially, once you've mastered those and you know how to put them all together, you can solve the puzzle and you can solve it blindfolded. And this was a bit of an aha moment for me because I suddenly saw how an algorithm as a process, as a way for completing a task, made sense when you think about how we aim to solve huge problems in society with computer science. So tell me, Adam, in your world, what is an algorithm? Well, I mean, that's a great example of an algorithm right there. Um, How to solve a Rubik's Cube. I confess, I've never actually learned how to do it myself. I understand that it's, (laughs) people say that it's pretty easy to do. I've never tried. Um, but you know, I, so I would still look at, at the achievement of your son being able to solve that Rubik's cube in, what did he say? Did you say, did you jump out of seconds or 20 or 30 seconds you said? Well, yeah, half of Rubik's cube blindfolded in 22 seconds. You know, the world, world record is 15 and a half seconds of full Rubik's cube. And this is unbelievable. This is a three by three. That's incredible. That is incredible. I think what's really cool is that, you know, by the time you're getting down to being able to solve a Rubik's cube inside of 15 seconds, it's 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 no longer about how impressive the algorithm is. You've got that algorithm well and truly worked out. At that point, it's just how, how quickly can you move your hands and how accurate are your fingers in, in manipulating that Rubik's cube, which um, is really cool. I think what's really interesting about it, and I was talking to him about whether or not he still uses it, and you know what he does? I find this fascinating. If he's about to do some maths or problem solving, he'll get in the mindset by solving a couple of Rubik's cubes. That is interesting, isn't it? So he must he's using that as as a way of priming, I guess, then his brain into into that mode of of, you know, mechanical manipulations, probably sort of spatiotemporal reasoning uh, and algorithms. For that purpose. So that's really cool. That's really cool. Did he tell you how he learnt how to solve the Rubik's Cube? Well, like every Gen Z 
learns today? <laughs> learns anything worth knowing, do you mean? <laughs> On YouTube. On yeah. YouTube, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, thanks very much, schooling system. Maybe they need a, you know, part of the rubric at school to be on uh, how to solve Rubik's Cubes or algorithms in general. I'm sure they spent some time talking about that. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a great example of an algorithm, um, which, you know, to your, as, as I think you've kind of alluded to already or set out in heaps of detail already, it's it's a procedural thing. It's very mechanical. Um, and it, you know, the, in the case of the Rubik's Cube, the, the steps, I guess, that are set out by that procedure involve some looping. So you'll take a look at the state of that Rubik's Cube. Um, you'll see that, you know, the next thing that you need to do or that will start you off in that in that path to getting to where you need to go. Um, you know, it might be a, a certain set of hand movements and then at the next step around, uh, you'll loop, you know, you'll loop over those same movements until you get to a point where the Rubik's Cube is solved. Um, you know, algorithms don't need to have loops. Um, they can, you know, they can be uh, much more kind of, um, you know, linear um, in their progression. And so, you know, whilst you look at a, a solved Rubik's Cube and go, oh my God, that's amazing, um, you know, uh, I'd look at I'd look at a cake that my mate baked, and I'd say, "Oh, that's amazing! How did you do that?" <laughs> Same thing. It's an algorithm that uh, that will tell you how to do that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really all there is. So, can you talk a little bit about you know um, building an algorithm in today's world as a data scientist? What's involved in that? What are your inputs and what are your outputs? Do you know what what's also great about about t- this day and age is that so many algorithms or are already available to us um, to to solve some of the really kind of tough challenges that we face in computer science in data science. Um, so for the for you know for a data scientist, it's really more often than not about choosing the right algorithm um, for the task. And it, it it really you know where you begin is what you're trying to achieve. So how um, does it work? Like, do you have a list of algorithms you, on a shelf that are open source that you just pull <laughs> down and you're like, no, I'll just use this algorithm? Um, do you make, do you create them? I know you create them yourself because in our work, uh, you guys are, are creating the algorithms that serve the data up through into the data platform. But I know that a lot of the time you're looking for greater speed and that's a really big issue. So how do you, how do you actually source the algorithms that you're working with and then um, how do you think about this, how you, you put it together, I suppose? I listened to actually a really great talk uh, not so long ago by, um, by a fellow who was talking about the way that he approaches the development of algorithms for the purpose of, I believe he was building software, but you know, I think what the, the software was doing was pretty close to data science anyway. And they were talking about um, when to optimize your algorithms. Um, and, and the, 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 the sort of opening, um, you know, statement was don't, this was a bit of a funny kind of, a uh, bit of a funny kind of bit of advice. But, um, the point is that when you, when you write software more often than not, um, because you'll be, but because you'll be, you know, asking your computer to carry out tasks for you, your computer is very, very fast at doing that. And so most things that, most things that people would day to day want their computer to do, don't need to run in unbelievably fast times. And so you'll want to perhaps aim for something that's a little bit more human readable to begin with. Um, in, you know, in very kind of you know, computer science terms, we've got things that we call for loops or while loops. And, and these are where you've set your computer something to do 
and you and it's doing it repetitively it's doing it one after the other and that is really easy for a human being to read and understand when a human being's looking through that code they'll see you know for each element in this collection of elements uh you know pull it open do this thing with it put it down again uh, really easy to understand what that's doing there are some much more efficient ways of going about doing the same thing or one way of of making that much faster using parallelism you know which is one thing that you might be able to do it's not always possible you can't always uh you can't always parallelize something that you've written in a in a for loop but 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 human readability is is um is definitely something to something that's worth uh preserving in your code at the point at which you've got it functioning though, then you do want to have a look at how you can make it run very fast. In particular, where you're wanting for the output of that algorithm to be something that can be served up to you know, the consumer, the user, the, uh, the receiver of that content in, in a, you know, at a short period of time and give them an experience with the thing that you're, uh, you're wanting them to interact with. So um, for example, you and I are having this conversation right now over, uh, over Zoom, on the Zoom call, and uh, what's happening is that the, uh, the visual data, um, the video data that my computer is capturing, that's being broadcast to you along with the, the audio information uh, across the internet between our computers. And in order to do that, it's needing to, well, it's needing to carry a lot of information, but, um, it, and the way that it would go about doing that is by, um, you know, naively, you might just imagine it just streaming, streaming the whole data capture that it's getting to straight over the internet to you. If you didn't try to, if you didn't try to compress or, or reduce the amount of information that it's trying to transfer, it would never be able to do that in an amount of time that would make our conversation, um, you know, enjoyable. There'd be so much latency, uh, you know, we'd be waiting for so long for each other to respond and it would be really laggy, could never happen, wouldn't be, wouldn't be a good experience. Um, so instead, what your computer does is it uses an algorithm, actually uses many algorithms, but one of the most important ones it uses is uh, called the Fourier transform, which takes the video information and the audio information, uh, it, it uh, transforms that or, or conjugates that into, uh, into a spectral form, uh, and then it will take only the most important bits of that information that you're trying to transfer, and it will transfer that in that sort of spectral transformation. So in the simplest form, how I'm interpreting this and how I see it is that essentially algorithms are integral to moving data or information through a process that results in making sense of the world in some way. That's right. So Adam, let's step back. We wrote an essay uh, maybe five years ago that outlined um, what we were collaborating on and creating together, which was called an algorithm for altruism. And it outlined, you know, how could we use modern techniques and data access, data science to support um, change in communities and society that was going to be for social good. Can you talk a little mm. bit about, you know, the early days and the work you were doing uh, when you were starting to think, when you were at the beginning of your data science career, I suppose. Uh, I remember meeting you um, and you were building a machine learning model on an Excel spreadsheet, which you <laughs> called your little baby. Um, can, you talk right. a, can you talk a bit about, you know, the early days for you and what, what was inspiring around uh, using these tools and techniques for um, social benefit? Yeah, well, so that was, um, it was really, that was a great time. Um, 
I had just taken a, a bit of a right turn out of engineering um, as as a in my in my last career as an engineer, and in that I'd you know spent a lot of my time working with data and playing with uh, with algorithms for making sense of that data, and um, <laughs> and that building you know building a, a neural network as it as it happens in Excel um, you know was was one of the the ways in which I found it was most helpful to get quickly an intuition for how these systems learn, how they how they evolve, if you like, as you're as it's learning from the data that you're feeding it. Um, and I certainly I would commend that. As I think I think that was a great exercise. Um, <laughs> people will look at you a bit funny when you're looking at, ex- at an Excel spreadsheet and it's it's doing stuff. It's I think actually, I probably showed yeah. you once or twice. Oh, you did <laughs> with a, a lot of excitement, I must say. And I do recall wondering why is this so cool? That's right, like a like a like a parent saying, you know, oh my, look at what my what my young child is able to do now. They tied their own shoelaces. Isn't that exciting? Why is it? Was it so exciting for you? I think there's something. Well, there's something just really mis. It's not really mysterious, but it, there's something a little bit like um, a little bit magic about watching a computer learn from data. Um, you know, the, each of the component each of the component parts of of a you know a complex um, machine learning model are really really simple, and these components, uh, you know, in, in the case of neural networks anyway, are assembled together in a structure which um, you know purportedly is inspired by the structure of the brain and so it's a really kind of natural leap to watch a neural network optimize from the data that you're feeding it and to recognize ways in which that process resembles the way that you might um, pick up new knowledge from interacting with the world and so and and it really it really is fuck. It's really exciting to see that happen and come to life because you're watching a little, you know, a little thing that is able to then achieve something real in the world. You know, you'll give it a piece of data and it can tell you something about that data, which, you know, wouldn't be immediately obvious to a human being necessarily. Um, and it's able to do that because it has, in some sense, learned something really cool about the world. I was also wanting to know why the altruism part for you? What was important about that? Because, you know, you're an engineer, you were um, a water strategist working very big systems. Of course, that had um, critical uh, infrastructure requirements for how society operates and water being fundamental to livability and well-being and to human life, of course. But moving into the work that that we do together, why was the altruism part an important part for you? Well, I think, and, you know, it's probably, it's, a, it's important for me to say, point out that at, at the time at which my attention was being drawn to, um, you know, kind of um, more human-centred pursuits, um, uh, that was in no small part because of the conversations that you and I started to have at that time, and your, um, you know, your deep and uh, uh, history in the, the philanthropic and social sector, um, really opened my eyes to the efforts of um, of that sector and of those folks working in grounded communities to to improve lives. And it, I think, 
became apparent at that time as well to me anyway that there was um there was a sense it was a kind of a visceral sense of the world becoming ever more unequal that inequality was really spiraling out of control or felt like it was spiraling out of control i think i think actually there was um the the intergenerational report there was an intergenerational report that had been released at that you know at about the same time or, or just before um and kind of the headline from that report was that um you know the millennial generation could expect to have a lower standard of living than uh than their parents generation in particular and that this was the first time for a long time that that was um that was likely to occur and uh <laughs> you know being a millennial there's something um probably uh probably a little bit selfish about going hey wait a minute that's no good um what's going on in the world um, and then you look around and you see, you know, algorithms, machine learning, all of these amazing, you know, advances, the most impressive and exciting, or some of the most impressive and exciting advances um, that we've made as a society, as a species over the last several decades, um, you know, predominantly being used to perpetuate and accelerate that inequality. Um, so I think that was part of, you know, what really kind of began to motivate me um, you know, and then the conversations that you and I are having, um, what was, what was it that originally, what was it that originally got you so focused on, on altruistic pursuits, Christy? Uh, I think fundamentally from my perspective, it's always been around how can I be in service and use my skills to be in service to help and support, uh, other people and their pursuits. Uh, and, you know, I think that it's a very rewarding and exciting time when you can support people who are, as you said earlier, working on the ground, doing work to improve lives with tools to help them do better and have better conversations, get a seat at the table. I did 10 years of philanthropic effort, as you talked about it, it was an, a sabbatical, I suppose, from the corporate sector and the tech sector, which was my background. But it was really an incredible opportunity to really see how society can change um, and what people do do, pioneers on the ground, in their communities, people working together quite simply to do things better. And I could see that having access to data and an evidence base in, in today's world where we're in the data age, of course, would really help accelerate that decision-making process and that collective, collaborative decision-making process. I mean, fast forward five years and now we've got a lot of insight around how that works and how that operates uh, and the importance of making sure we're not creating a huge data divide between those organisations that have the access to resources, skills and money to utilise and make best use of the data age and those people and communities on, on the ground who are, who are uh, changing the system from the bottom up. And so for me, it was about, okay, well, this is a terrific resource um, and, it, and it's potentially going to change human society. How do we ensure we don't create a data divide and, and make sure that all people can access uh, data and information to take better actions that make sense for them? And so that was that was my inspiration. Yeah, and, and of course you um you you'd had you'd had a team of data scientists at one point 
working on, uh, you know, working on some bits and pieces at a previous organisation as well. Sure, you know, I've had the privilege of working with many large government agencies and corporates on data strategy and, you know, using data to improve outcomes for on, on the bottom line or product development, other such things. And so, you know, became quite evident to me that you can apply these skills into the social purpose or into society. Uh, and now, you know, we get to work with public policy makers and local people on the ground and a whole range of not-for-profits and actors who are collaborating to create thriving communities. Do you remember when we did the Data Science Immersive at General Assembly? I do. Do you remember the Venn diagram of what is data science? It's, it's domain expertise, it's statistics, and it's coding. So I think I had plenty of that domain expertise, <laughs> or at least maybe I thought I did. What was it for you that was important about that? Firstly, I think you can't get away without the domain expertise. Each time I've gone to you know pick up some um, you know a new project with a not for profit or with any other organisation for really for that matter who uh, you know, are looking for help that involves data science, the first thing that you have to spend a lot of time making sure that you understand really well is the organization. It's, uh, you know, once you understand the organization, you can start, you'll, you'll build a, a, um, in your own mind uh, an expectation of the kinds of data that probably exist, um, the way in which the data that does exist has come into existence within that, you know, that this organization holds and what that data kind of might mean. Um, it's really, it's really important to have that intuition if you're then going to undertake, you know, that some of the early steps in, in a data science engagement, which will typically involve some exploratory analysis, um, and that exploratory analysis, um, you know, is going to work best when you're led by, uh, by an understanding of what that data represents. So, um, so that's that, you know, that domain expertise is, is just the most important, I think, part um, the statistics, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll speak for myself rather than any other data scientist for the moment. But if, you know, when I'm needing to, uh, when I'm needing to use statistics in a, you know, in a very technical sense, um, I will always be refreshing my memory. <laughs> you know, one thing that's, I think one thing that's probably ubiquitous amongst computer scientists, statisticians, um, you know, data scientists is that we're really good at Googling. Coding is similar, you know, you build up your, your sort of competence, if you like, writing code in the same way that you build a competence, you know, using the English language or any other language, um, but it certainly doesn't stop you from um, or, or uh, you know, mean that you don't have to go and look up the meaning of a new word or, you know, how it is that you'd achieve this or that. You know, we spent a lot of time on, on uh, stats exchange, stack overflow, um, you know, a whole bunch of, whole bunch of online resources to to find the best way of, of achieving certain things in your code. You get better at that over time, but yeah, definitely would always return to that domain knowledge. And then somehow we became a little bit conversant in being able to explain these concepts to uh, communities and to people who um, were very interested and excited about, okay, this, these tools, I can use this in our work. Uh, we can use data for better decision-making for collaboration, for conversations, for um, seeking funds, for, uh, you know, impact measurement, other such things, as well as for answering more complex questions through some of the techniques you've implemented 
to answer, you know, interesting questions that can impact policy. So what is data? The data is, in my understanding, anything which fits a certain pattern that you see repeated throughout the world. And that is that data is anything which can be fed into uh, a model. It's a very abstract sort of set of ideas that I'm going to sort of step through here. Um, but, you know, keeping in, this, keeping in mind this sort of abstract concept of data, this abstract concept of a model, um, to data gets fed into a model. A model is a thing which makes it prediction. And a prediction, again, another abstract concept, is a thing that can be used to make a decision. And now we've got a concept that is less abstract and that we all sort of have, have I think, a, a good intuition for what a decision is. So when you make a decision, um, any decision really, that decision is based on uh, a desire to achieve something in the world. And that, a, that desire to achieve something, um, you know, is uh, you need a prediction about what your decision is going to do. Um, that is going to either achieve or not achieve that thing that you want in the world. So that's where that prediction becomes really important. You've got a set of predictions about what's going to happen if you make a, one of a variety of decisions, and that's how you choose the decision that you've got to make. Um, and again, that prediction is, is coming out of a model. So this is where, um, you know, through your experience, and that, you know, we're talking now about human beings and how uh, human beings have, sort of have all of these models that are actually baked into us, um, we have models for how, um, you know, how the world operates. If I see this particular context, then, uh, then my model will give me a prediction about what's going to happen next. Um, so your model is really is, is uh, your representation of how the world works. And then as I said, data is anything that gets fed into that model. So then it's, um, uh, data is really that context. It's, it's, um, it's here's what I know, um, you know, what should I expect? Um, and the reason of the reason of keeping it at that kind of really sort of abstract level and and try to trying to have it span the the domains simultaneously of of the human being of the human world of the real world, um, you can then also step it into the the data and statistics world, data is in the name into the world of statistics and computer science and data science, um, where that data then is fed into what we formalize as models. Um, which are typically mathematical structures, uh, which will take in that data, which again is typically uh, encoded uh, in, you know, in numbers. Those models make predictions: what's likely to happen as a result of uh, as a result of that context. Um, and then the decision is something that either you know a human being might make when it's uh, when it's offered the predictions of the model, um, or you know, in certain circumstances, um, we're seeing this that. Um, that computers are set up to make decisions in an automated way uh, and, and you know, enact, enact certain things uh, in the world on the basis of the decisions that they're, that they're given. So this really is, is what data is, or the way I think about it. It's, it's what sort of sits at that really early stage in that, in that funnel from data to models to, pr to predictions to decisions. So I love how you explain that data, the model of the world, the prediction, and then the action. We hear a lot about the bias in data science and there's a lot of concern around bias. It occurs to me that this bias when defining, you know, the intuition or the model for the world is where it can be easily introduced to impact the prediction and therefore the outcome. Can you talk a bit about that? You know, how is bias managed when you are considering which data to feed into your model and what your model of the world is. 
Is mm. that where we're talking and is that where the risk for bias is at its highest? Bias is one of these really interesting concepts that we hear a lot of conversation about at the moment to do with data science, to do with machine learning and AI. And the question is often, you know, where's the, like, where is the opportunity for bias to, um, to be introduced into the system? Um, in particular, where you've got automated decisions that are being made. You know, if you've got a biased system, uh, it's going to be perpetuating, um, you know, certain outcomes that are not desirable in the real world. That's a real problem. Um, theoretically, and- somebody's built that at the very outset, right? Somebody with a particular bias or model of the world or a group of people have built that at the beginning before the machine learns and, and iterates and takes over. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, that's right. And, you know, as human beings, you know, we all have biases. This is trivially true of all of us that we each have our biases and, um, and they do have an impact in what we do. I think as, um, you know, as data practitioners, um, actually it's, it's the most important thing for us to bear in mind and to work hard to overcome is our biases. And actually what's great about the field of data science is that this has been known for a very long time. And most, well, a hell of a lot of the techniques that are really common um, and popular in data science are about trying to avoid bias. Um, and for that reason, I think the, the industry by and large is for the most part uh, pretty good actually at avoiding bias. Um, and here you've kind of got to differentiate or at least you know, kind of point out a couple of differences in the way that people inside the, the sort of field of data science talk about bias and think about biases compared to people who might not be data scientists necessarily. There's this kind of, uh, the way in which people out there in the real world talk about bias is the way in which I was, meant, I was meaning it, you know, when, when we began, um, when we get to talk about bias, which is, you know, we've all got our biases as human beings. When we talk about bias in the, in the, in the world of data science, what we're really talking about is the degree to which uh, your process is misaligned with what you're really trying to achieve in very simple terms. Um, and you know, that uh, misalignment can occur at a variety of different steps throughout the process of developing a machine learning model, for example. Um, the first step that w- where you might introduce bias into a machine learning model or into a machine learning system is with the data. So, uh, you know, as we said, data is the thing that gets fed into a model and you, you, um, you will typically create a corpus of data that you're going to use to train your model at the outset. And what you want from that corpus is that the data inside it taken in its totality is broadly representative of the real world. Um, and when I say broadly representative of the real world, I mean representative of that part of the world that your model is really concerned with. So if you are trying to recommend, let's say, um, you know, Netflix films, and, uh, and you want a model of the real world that's going to tell you about the kind of films that people really like to watch, then you're going to want to make sure that you've got uh, a really good and broad sample of like all the films that everybody has ever liked to watch ever. Um, and the, you know, when, where Netflix might have a challenge with that is that they're really only going to have access or, you know, we imagine they only really have access to the data from the people that are on their platform for a start. So they won't know what necessarily what distribution of people and new subscriber to Netflix is coming from. So there's an element of bias. 
um, you know, is your data representative of the real world? Can you uh, give me an example of, you know, that in the public policy or social sector? Yeah, <laughs> great question. There's, um, there's the, uh, the really kind of famous example, I think, of, um, of bias, uh, you know, which is introduced well, actually, there are a couple of examples I can think of. One was in the, I think, was in the context of the criminal justice system in the United States not long ago, where it was discovered, um, you know, by by the rest of society that the criminal justice system was using an automated system to um, to make a decision about who was going to be released, um, you know, on on bail or uh, or granted early release from prison. And the question was. Are they likely to repeat offend? Are they going to offend again once they, once they get out of prison? And um, turned out that um, what what this what this system was doing was applying uh, a bias against um, certain racial groups, and you know that's a huge problem. Um, it's a huge problem because you you know that's something that you want your system to not be concerned with at all. Um, shouldn't matter you know what racial group we're talking about. Um, you know they should have they should have an equal equal treatment under the law. So you'd have to work pretty hard to make sure that the data that you fed into that system was free of that kind of bias. It is you know it's also trivially trivially true that when you uh, when you separate society when you divide society along any particular you know outcome metric, uh, you're going to have imbalance one way or the other. Um, and so your algorithm, your machine learning algorithm, is going to pick up on those imbalances. And is going to bake them in naturally from that data set that you feed in. So that's a huge problem. I think part of what people probably came to realize from that particular example was that you can't automate decisions of that kind. You 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 can you can augment the capabilities of the human being whose responsibility it is to make that decision, but automating that decision from beginning to end, um, you know, introduces a lot of problems. Uh, I think more recently than that, we've seen examples where, um, and I, I won't name them, but there was a large uh, tech organization who, or which, let's say, had um, had used an AI system to uh, to filter and to rank um, the the, uh, the 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 CVs, the the resumes from applicants to their uh, to their uh, hiring pipeline, and again, uh, you know. The, the data that they'd fed to the system that was um, that was making the prediction about the kind of candidates that they're going to be most interested in, uh, that data was trained on the basis of which kinds of people have we hired in the past? <laughs> right. And, um, you know, where there might have been, um, you know, a more prejudicial or biased hiring practice in the past, uh, you know, in particular from the people whose responsibility was the hiring process historically, those historic biases are going to be represented in that data set. And so there's a bias that's crept into the data there. Um, again, uh, you know, it's really important to, to, to bear these kinds of things in mind. Yeah, so, so there's bias that's, you know, it's actually really hard to avoid bias in your data. Um, in particular, actually what you, what you want is for your data to be biased in ways that are useful to your model. Um, but are not going to result in the kind of uh, misalignment of outcomes on the downstream end. Your model actually requires bias in a sense in the data um, in order to have signal in that data that it can learn from. It's got to have something in the data it can learn from. Um, it's got to be able to discriminate 
if you like, on the basis of something. Otherwise, there's nothing for it. it you won't have any idea how to predict <laughs> anything at all from the data that you feed it. Um, so that's necessary. But how do you how do you make sure that you're not misaligned with what we want as an outcome as people? Um, the 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 main one of the ways in which data scientists will use the word bias is also in the context of the model architecture that they choose. Um, in data science, we um, you know we learn early on about what's called the bias variance trade off. Um, where bias in this sense is used to mean um, how, uh, how, how blunt an instrument is our model that we've constructed. How simple is it? Have we oversimplified our model? Have we introduced too much bias in the, the structure that, uh, that the mathematical transformations will take of the data as it flows through the model from, from data to prediction? Um, that's typically not what people mean when they're talking about bias in the real world. Um, but then the other way that which well, the other way in which ML systems can have bias introduced is in the uh, the optimization or training of that model, and this really has to do with the question of what exactly it is that you want your model to do. Um, how are you evaluating the performance of your model? Um, and you know, one of the you know there are plenty of ways in which you can optimize your model, which rely on very very simple techniques. Um, if you've got a regression model, um, you might be taking a simple, you know, ordinary least squares uh, loss function as your optimization. So you're trying to get it to make predictions which are as close as possible to the numeric value um, that that data, that is the label for that data. So Adam, we've talked a lot today about what an algorithm is, what data is, the model of the world, making predictions, how machines learn. We haven't spoken much about AI, but through the podcast series, we will definitely get to talk about that. I'm really excited to do this podcast with you. We've been talking about doing it for many years, I think, from when we were on a road trips from, you know, San Francisco, getting up to Mount Shasta, talking about wouldn't it be great to do a podcast? Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> the trip to Mount Shasta is, a, is, um, is one that I think saw us bandying about some ideas for what the podcast might focus on that went into a lot of different directions. Um, I remember the name of the um, the like mythical society that is uh, you know the, the legends have it live beneath the the volcanic uh, caves and whatnot of Mount Shasta, but uh, oh, it's definitely one idea I think that we had at one point. I think they uh, were the Lemurians, were they in um, that cave called Lemurians? Yes, I could but. More of that later, I think a lot of people who've um, we've had the chance to work with also know the side stories and we've been on adventures with many of them. So hopefully we'll get to talk to them as well. Yeah, I th we've got some great guests coming up. I'm really excited to have on some just wonderful people, lots of really exciting conversations and lots to dig into in and around data and other things adjacent. Well, that's all everyone thank you for joining us we hoped you enjoyed the conversation this is christy and this is adam on the foil podcast check us out at www.thefoil.ai and follow us on instagram at the foil podcast share this out to anyone you think might be interested in what we and our guests have to say let them know what we've got coming up see you next time